and Zaphon, Zaphon, sorry, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, Jordan and his border, even unto the edge of the sea of Chinnereth on the side, uh, sorry, the other side, Jordan, eastward. This is an inheritance of the children of Gad after their families, the cities and their villages. And so this region, Succoth, would end up being part of the inheritance given to the tribe of Gad. Okay, and it was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. That's where he is still. He's still on the eastern side. He hasn't crossed over the Jordan into the land of Canaan proper. He's still on that eastern side. But he stays here for this period of time in this place that would eventually be the land of Israel. It would be their land. He stays there for a period of time because he finds good pasture for his flocks and for his herds, a place they could rest and regain their strength. And they stay there long enough that they build booths for the cattle. And indeed, it says they build a house as well in this region. So they stay there for at least a year or two. They're there a little while. And eventually, he gathers everything together once more, and he crosses the Jordan into the land of Canaan proper. Look in verse 18. So then Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And he came from Padanaram and pitched his tent before the city. <clears throat> in verse 18, we're told... And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem. Now the word Shalem here actually means peace. And there's no city called Shalem. And so most actually believe that this shouldn't be considered a proper name. But instead the verse should read, Jacob came in peace unto the city of Shechem. And indeed that seems to be the meaning of the verse. He came in peace to the city of Shechem. You see, when Jacob left Canaan all those years before, remember he met with the Lord at Bethel, he saw the staircase, and the Lord had given him that assurance that I'll be with you as you go. The Lord had given him a promise that he would bring him back to the land in peace. And we see that he's finally now in the land and he finally has peace. Go back to chapter 28 just quickly. <clears throat> Chapter 28, verse 15. This is what God had said to him. He said, And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and bring thee again, sorry, and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. That was God's words to him. He says, I will bring you back to the land. I will not leave you until I've done all these things. And Jacob's response is recorded at the end of the chapter, verse 20. So then Jacob vowed a vow saying, if, and we talked about the fact that, that means because, because God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God. Jacob understood what God was saying. God said, I will be with you and I will bring you back in peace. And God now kept his word, didn't he? God kept his word. Jacob is finally in the land and he is in peace. In fact, the place that he returns to is the place where God had first appeared to Abraham when he entered the land years earlier. Go back to chapter, chapter 12 with me. Chapter 12, verse 6. This is an Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem. Sikkim. It's the same place, Shechem. Unto the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was, was then in the land. 
And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Isn't it amazing? He's back in the place where Abraham had come and arrived when he first came and where he first met with the Lord. Jacob is now there all these years later. He's there in that place. He's finally in the land of Canaan proper. And at this significant place, he's at peace. And what does he do? Verse 19 and 20, he purchases a piece of land, doesn't he? And sets up an altar unto the Lord. Verse 19 there, it says, And he bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elihi Israel. He purchased a piece of land there in the land of Canaan. You know, this purchase of land showed that Jacob was here to stay, didn't it? He was here to stay. He was home in the promised land. One commentator wrote this, This purchase showed that Jacob, in reliance upon the promise of God, regarded Canaan as his own home and the home of his seed. This is the first piece of land that he purchases there in the land. God had said it was all his, but he understood that he had to wait for that to happen, didn't he? He had to wait. And so he purchases his first portion of land, and on that first portion of land, what does he do? He sets up an altar unto the Lord, and he calls it there in verse 21, uh, <coughs> verse 20, 20, sorry, Elihi Israel. That name basically means God, the God of Israel. Here in the middle of an idolatrous land, Jacob establishes a new center of worship to the one true God. His God, the God of Israel. And with this altar, Jacob leads his family in worshipping and in giving thanks to God for all that he has done in bringing them to this place. And beloved, this event, this whole event, started back at the start of chapter 31. In verse 3, where we read this, And the Lord said unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers, and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. Remember that? He was there laboring for, for Laban there in Haran, and God appeared to him, and God said, It's time to go. Return, and I'll be with thee. And Jacob responded to that instruction, that command from the Lord, by faith. And in obedience, he, le he left, he went. And God responded by keeping his word. God did as he said he would. God preserved him through every trial along the way. He protected him from Laban and his evil intentions. He protected him from Esau by changing Esau's heart, softening his heart so he received him in peace. And beloved, through every trial that he faced, Jacob responded in the right way. Jacob took it to the Lord in prayer. And God was faithful. God heard him and God kept his, his word. God answered his prayer. And beloved, like Jacob, we can be sure that when we step out by faith and we obey the Lord, He will be with us every step of the way. There will be trials along the way. We've seen that right throughout this whole event. There will be trials along the way. There will be things that bring us distress, that bring us fear. But beloved, we need to take each of them to the Lord in prayer and leave them there and then lift up our eyes 
Focus on him and press on. And then, beloved, watch as the Lord takes care of each one of them in his way, in his perfect time. You see, like Jacob, we will then be able to look back and give thanks. Give glory to God for all that he has done. All that he has done for us and all that he is doing for us every single day. Beloved, our God is a gracious, loving, merciful, trustworthy God. May we trust him fully every day. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, and we, Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this whole story, this whole event with Jacob traveling back to the land of Canaan and every step of the way, Lord, you were with him. Every little concern that Jacob brought before you in prayer, Lord, you dealt with. And Lord, you taught him to focus on the big picture and realize that those little concerns are already dealt with. Lord, may you help us likewise to lift up our eyes, to see you in all of your glory, to see you on your throne and realize, Lord, that you are in control. Those little concerns that we have are already dealt with. Lord, may you help us to trust you every day. Lord, bless as we close and be with us as we depart from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 33, let's <clears throat> begin reading just in verse 1. It says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men. 
And he divided the children unto Leah, and unto Rachel, and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over before them, and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, Lord, once more that we can come and we can spend some time uh, gathered around your word this morning. Lord, I pray that uh, you would give us understanding of your word once more, that you would I was to come with hearts that are ready to receive and to learn of you. Lord, I pray that you would empower me through the Spirit, give me wisdom and guidance as I speak, that it would be your words this morning, it would be your thoughts, and that, Lord, all praise and glory and honor would be given unto you. I pray you bless our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> as we come to chapter 33, uh, we find that the meeting that Jacob has been uh, dreading and preparing for, that meeting finally takes place. Now, this meeting had been the burden of his heart. It had been something that had been greatly concerning him. Now, he had not seen his brother for 20 years, and the last time he did see Esau, Esau was intent on killing him, on murdering him. You know, Jacob had prepared for this meeting as best he could. You know, we've seen that he wisely prepared by sending a delegation before him to meet with Esau. We saw him this morning prepare by sending a substantial gift out to his brother, seeking to show his intentions. But most importantly, he had prepared for this meeting in prayer. Now, he'd spent time with the Lord, particularly as we saw this morning that night, wrestling with God in prayer. And as we saw this morning, by the end of that prayer... Jacob is now fully prepared for whatever lays ahead. He's fully prepared to meet his brother. He is fully prepared to enter into the promised land and establish the foundations for the nation of Israel. He's fully prepared. He knew that he would prevail because of God's blessing upon his life. And so Jacob, he has a renewed confidence, doesn't he? <clears throat> a renewed confidence that whatever happens on this day, it doesn't matter. Because God is in control. God's promises would be fulfilled. And with that in mind, we see uh, the meeting that now takes place between these two brothers. Notice firstly here this morning, we see the coming of Esau. The coming of Esau. Let's just read again verse 1. <clears throat> so Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men. And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. So Jacob has now rejoined his family after this night, this wonderful, amazing night, wrestling with God in prayer, wrestling with him physically, <clears throat> earnestly desiring the blessing of God. He's now returned to his family across the Jabok, Jabok River, <clears throat> Excuse me. And he returns with a new limp and with a new name, doesn't he? He returns with a limp and he returns with a new name, both of which are a constant reminder of the blessing, the blessing that he had received from God. 
And not longer after he arrives back in the camp, but back with his family once more, he looks up and he sees Esau now on the horizon. As we read at the start of verse 1, it says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men. Now the verse begins, it says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes. Now most commentators see this lifting up of the eyes here as an expression of his newfound cheerfulness and confidence and, and the peace that's in his heart. You see, he's no longer distressed. He's no longer afraid of this meeting with Esau. There is complete confidence. There is complete peace in his heart that God is in control. And so his eyes are not cast down. His eyes are lifted up. They're lifted up and he is ready to face his brother. Now at the sight of Esau and his 400 men, Jacob now makes one final preparation, doesn't he? We see there at the end of verse 1, it says, And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel, unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And so we see him make one final preparation for this meeting with his brother. He arranges his wives and children in appropriate order to meet with Esau. He puts the handmaids, Bilhar and Zilpah and their children, he puts them first, followed by Leah and her children, and then, of course, Rachel and Joseph bringing up the rear. And there's no secret here as to the reason for the order, is there? There's no secret. He arranges them so that the, the most precious are at the rear, okay? And this is like an ascending order, isn't it? Okay? Start out with the, the handmaids and their children, and then Leah, and then Rachel. There's no secret here to his arrangement. Morris writes this, Presumably, the purpose was to give the maximum possible protection to those he loved most, but at least a secondary purpose was to have them meet Esau in climatic order. And that's indeed what ends up happening. Esau meets them in climatic order. He starts with the handmaids, their children, then he meets Leah, and then he meets Rachel. He's the one he wanted to marry from the start. Matthew Henry likewise writes this. He says he puts his family in the best order he could, to receive Esau, whether he should come as a friend or as an enemy, consulting their decency if he came as a friend and their safety as he came, if he came as an enemy. This arrangement is best for both purposes, isn't it? Okay? It's best for, best for both ways. If he comes as a friend, well, he can introduce them in ascending order. Okay? If he comes as an enemy, then he's got them in protection as well. And so he arranges his family <clears throat> in this matter and he's ready for whatever might occur at this meeting. But you know, no matter what happened, Jacob was fully confident that God's will would be done. Remember, he's just had a, a night with God. He just wrestled with the Lord and God's changed his name. God said, you've got power with God and with man and you have prevailed, you will prevail. And so he has this confidence. He's trusting in God as he goes forward. And we see that confidence because he leads his family out, doesn't he? Okay, look there in verse 3. It says, and he passed over before them. Where's Jacob? He's not at the back of this procession. He's not hiding. Jacob is at the very front, leading this procession out to meet with his brother. If, if his brother comes with evil intentions, who's going to suffer the wrath? He, it's going to be Jacob. Okay? He's at the front. He's going to meet his brother first. There's no fear here. That's the point. He's not fearful of his brother. He's full of confidence as he goes forth to meet Esau that God, God's will will be done. 
you know, we notice also that he doesn't approach his brother with arrogance and pride, does he? Look again there in verse 3. It says, And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. He bows himself to the ground seven times. Now think about that for a moment. We just talked about it. But Jacob, he's just had a night with God. He's just wrestled with God in prayer, wrestled physically. He's heard God change his name to Israel, declaring, as a prince, thou hast power with God and with man. I mean, that's an amazing, incredible name as we saw this morning. And Jacob has that in his head, but how does he approach his brother? With pride, with arrogance? No, with humility and respect. See, he doesn't let it go to his head, does he? This night in prayer and the answer from God, he doesn't let it go to his head. We once more see Jacob, a man of meekness, a man of humility, as he comes and he approaches his brother. You know, this approach from Jacob was important because it served to demonstrate clearly to Esau his desire for peace, just in case Esau hasn't got it yet. You know, after everything else that Jacob's done, just in case he now still approaches with this attitude of humility and respect, showing Esau clearly that he wants peace, he wants reconciliation. You know, Jacob still could not be sure how his brother was going to respond. But in verse 4, we read an amazing thing now happens. Esau runs to meet him. Look in verse 4, it says, And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Esau is now overcome with emotion, and he runs. He runs to meet Jacob, and he embraces him. The hatred that he had for his brother is gone, and it's replaced with love. You see, these two brothers, we see them now embraced and we see them weeping for joy. This is truly a remarkable end to such a distressing situation, isn't it? Okay, this has been the concern of Jacob this whole time, on his heart. This is a remarkable end to it all, isn't it? And make no mistake, Esau had not come with this intent. That's clear, because he brought an army of 400 men. You don't bring an army of 400 men if your intention is to run and hug and kiss your brother. Okay, his intention was not peace. But now we see that that's all gone and these two brothers embrace in love and peace. We cannot look at this scene and not see the power of God. Can we not? You can't examine this and not see that God is in this. Jacob has spent the night in prayer... He's poured his heart out to God. God's turned his affection and his, and his eyes to the big picture. And God has done a miracle, hasn't he? God has taken care of the problem, taken care of the concern. You know, at the end of verse 4, it says that they both were weeping. So Esau ran and met him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. They're both weeping. You know, we know what Jacob's tears were for. They were tears of joy, weren't they? So were Esau's. But Jacob's were tears of joy and wonder at what God had done in the heart of his brother. God had done what seemed to be impossible. God had softened the heart of his brother. Well, this, whole, this whole event here is, an, is a wonderful example 
of the power of prayer, isn't it? It's a wonderful example of the power of prayer. You know, last Sunday and the Sunday before, Pastor Davis was preaching on Philippians chapter 4 and talking about this whole matter of committing our anxious cares unto the Lord in prayer. That's what Jacob's done the whole way through, isn't it? He's committed his anxious care to the Lord in prayer. Let's just go over and read that passage. I know we know it. But let's go to Philippians 4. It's amazing how these messages have all tied in together. The Lord's been working, obviously. Philippians 4, verse 6. Wonderful verse. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Jacob is a wonderful example of this truth. He took his anxious care to the Lord in prayer and God dealt with it. That's what this passage is talking about. We've seen it over the last couple of weeks that we are to commit all these things to the Lord. And when we do, and when we leave them there with Him, what does God give us? Peace in our hearts. Peace that only God can give. A peace that passeth all understandings. Isn't that what Jacob had? Jacob had peace in his hearts. That morning as he went forth to meet his brother, he had peace that passeth all understanding. He wasn't sure how God was going to answer his prayer. You realize that? God had not told him, oh, you're going, this is how Esau is going to respond. He didn't know. He simply knew God had blessed him and God had said, my will will be done. You don't have to fear. And so he knew whatever happened, it was God's will. He knew whatever happened that morning, it was in God's hands. And it wouldn't affect God's ultimate purpose, the big picture. That's where the peace was. Understanding that whatever happened on this day, with this meeting, God was in control. And God did something amazing, didn't He? God softened His hearts. You see, we need to learn this wonderful principle of committing our problems to the Lord in prayer. But then as we saw this morning, leave them there with Him, turn our attention to the big picture, realizing God already has the solution. You see, our part is what? Our part is to commit it to Him, leave it there, let God deal with it, as we've seen in Philippians 4, turn our attention to God's will and press on faithfully for Him, isn't it? And beloved, when we do that, we will then look back and rejoice and see God's answer to prayer. Now, we've talked about it over the last few weeks, but we live in a time when there is a lot of uncertainty with COVID and all these restrictions and everything else. And it is a concern. It's a thing that weighs on people's hearts. This weight on my heart the last few weeks says that what's going to happen with the government, what's going to happen with church, and whether we're going to be able to open up. I don't know about you, but on Monday, praise God, our Premier announced that at 80% vaccination, we can all get together in church. When you look through the rules, churches are the only, only exemption at 80%. Beloved, that's an answer to prayer. That's an answer to prayer. Let's praise God. We're going to have to shut the doors for a couple of weeks at 70%, and I'll announce that this week. But two weeks of heartache before we can have full open, be all here again. That's a reason to praise God, isn't it? We've committed that earnestly to the Lord in prayer, left it with Him, and beloved, God's dealt with it. Let's rejoice. And the point is, there's other concerns. I know we've all got concerns. Commit them to the Lord in prayer, 
and focus on Him in the big picture. Press on. And God will answer. It may not be exactly how we want, but it will be the best solution. It'll be what God says. It'll be what's best for us. God's in control. That's what God does here for Jacob. God brought peace where it seemed impossible. And having embraced each other, these two brothers now have a conversation together. Let's look at their conversation. That's our second point of this morning. We see the conversation between these two brothers. Look in verse 5 there of chapter 33. It says, And he lifted up his eyes, talking about Esau, it says, And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, and said, Who are those with thee? And he said, The the children which God hath graciously given to thy servant. Then the handmaidens came near, and they and their children, and they bowed themselves. And Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves. And after came Joseph near and Rachel, and they bowed themselves. There's a conversation now that takes place between these two brothers. And the conversation begins as Esau lifts up his eyes and he sees, he sees all the women and the children who are following Jacob close behind. And he asks his brother, he says, who are these with thee? Who are all these people? And you know, Jacob here doesn't miss an opportunity, does he? You notice his response? He says, and he said, These, the children which God hath graciously given thy servants. Jacob doesn't miss a beat, does he? He doesn't miss an opportunity. He says, These are the children God has given me. God has graciously blessed me with. You see, Jacob could have just said, Oh, these are my children. Couldn't he? He could have just said, These are my children. This is my family. But instead what we see yet again is Jacob's godly character because he sees an opportunity to praise God. And he says, these are the children God has graciously given me. He acknowledges that they're a gift from the Lord, a gift of His grace. You know, Psalm 127 verse 3 was not yet written, but it sums up perfectly this same truth, doesn't it? Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. Jacob, he understood that truth, didn't he? And he expresses that truth here to his brother. He says, these are God's gracious gift to me. And then in verse 6 and 7, we see them now come and they each introduce themselves to Esau. Let's just read it again. It says, then the handmaids, manners came near. They and their children, and they bowed themselves. And Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves. And came Joseph near and Rachel, and they bowed themselves. We see them now come and introduce themselves. And what we notice is that they all come in the order that Jacob had arranged them, back in verse 1 and 2. That's how they come, in that order. And we notice that they each come, and what do they do? They bow themselves before Esau. Not worshipping Esau. Okay, It's the same as Jacob. It's showing him respect. It's humility. They're following Jacob's example, aren't they? They approach Esau here with humility and with respect. This speaks to Jacob's godly leadership, doesn't it? Within the home. They're following his example. They follow his example here. Showing that same humility, that same respect that he has shown. And after meeting the family, the conversation then turns to the animals that Esau has met coming in the way. The droves of animals. Look in verse 8. It says, and he said, What meanest thou by all this drove which I 
met. And he said, Lo, these are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. Esau asked Jacob, he says, what, what means all this? What, what was the point of all these droves that I've met as I'm coming to meet with you? Now, Esau already knew the answer, didn't he? Okay. The servants were instructed as to what they were to say. They were to tell him exactly what it was. A gift from Jacob, uh, his servants, addressing him as Lord. And so he knew exactly what they were. So this is not a question of ignorance, is it? This is an act of courtesy. That's what it is. It's polite courtesy. His question gives Jacob here the opportunity to express for himself, express plainly the purpose of this gift, which he does there at the end of verse 8. He says, it's to find grace in the sight of my Lord. Jacob makes it clear to his brother that this gift was all about peace, was all about reconciliation with his brother. And in verse 9, we see Esau politely refuse Jacob's gift. He says in verse 9, And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. Esau says, Jacob, I, I have enough. It, it's not necessary. You know, by this time, Esau himself is a wealthy man. I mean, the fact that he can bring an army of 400 men tells you he's a man of position of power and wealth. He has enough. And he is content to just be reunited with his brother. He says, I don't need the gift. But Jacob, of course, he insists, doesn't he? In verse 10 it says, And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face as, as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And he urged him, and he took it. Now, one commentator wrote this. He said, In Eastern countries, the acceptance of a gift is equivalent to the striking of a covenant of friendship. If your present be received by your superior, you may rely on his friendship. If it be declined, you have everything to fear. And that's the point here. Okay? This, this, Jacob wants Esau to accept the gift to show that he does want peace. Okay? To show there is an agreement of reconciliation. That's why he's so insistent here, that he accepts it. He wants this peace to be between the two brothers. He wants reconciliation to exist. And Esau's acceptance of the gift would show that he did too. It would show his attitude as well. It would confirm what Jacob had already seen in his face when they met. At the end of the verse 10 there, it says, For therefore I have seen thy face, as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. See, Jacob had seen the friendliness on his face when they met and they embraced and they hugged and they wept. He'd seen the friendliness on his face when they met and the acceptance of the gift would confirm this restoration of friendship. That's the point here. But you know, it's interesting that as he insists that his brother accept the gift, Jacob doesn't miss the opportunity to do what? To give glory to God yet again. Just read verse 11 there. It says, take, I pray thee, my blessing that, I, that is brought to thee because God hath dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And he urged him and he took it. Jacob doesn't miss the opportunity to once again acknowledge God. Acknowledge that God had graciously given him all that he had. And he says to Esau, he says there in verse 11, I have enough. 
Now, it sounds very similar to verse 9, doesn't it? It says, and Esau said, I have enough, my brother. It sounds very similar. In the King James, it's the exact same wording. But in the Hebrew, it's totally different. In the Hebrew, what Esau says is, I have much. What Jacob says is, I have all. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Esau says, I have much. Jacob says, I have all. He says, I don't need anything else. God has given me everything I need. That's his declaration here. And after hearing this, we see Esau responds by saying, all right, I'll take your gift. That's the end of verse 11 there. He says, and he urged him and he took it. Morris writes this, Esau realizing the sincerity of Jacob's motives and also desiring that there be no question that he has also earnestly desired full reconciliation with his brother, finally agreed to accept the gift. And so with the gift now both uh, gift received, given and received, they've essentially agreed a covenant of friendship. They've agreed peace between these two brothers. And Esau now offers to travel with Jacob the rest of the way. Look in verse 12. It says, And he said, Let us take our journey, and let us go, and I will go before thee. Esau offers graciously. He says, I'll travel with you, Jacob. Let's go together. You know, after being away for 20 years, the most natural assumption was that Jacob was going to visit Isaac. And that probably was his first destination, going to see his father, who is still alive at this time. And he's dwelling at, most likely, Hebron. That's where he dies. So we assume he's dwelling at Hebron. And so the assumption is that that's where he's going. And indeed, that's where he most likely is going. And Esau basically says, I'll go with you. Let's go together the rest of the way. This is an honest offer. And Jacob honestly and politely refuses. Look in verse 13. It says, And he said unto him, My Lord, knoweth that the children are tender, and the flocks and herds with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock would die. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly, according as the cattle that goeth before me and the children be able to endure until I come unto my Lord, unto Sierra. And so Jacob declines the offer here, graciously, politely, and he doesn't decline it because he doesn't trust his brother. Okay, that, that's not, they've just agreed a peace agreement. They've just agreed that they're at peace with each other. They've shown each other their love, their affection. He doesn't decline this because he doesn't trust his brother. But rather he does it because he knew it would be impractical. Okay, just as we read there in the verses, but Morris writes this, he says, Esau's band of armed men would be impatient with the slow pace they would have to follow, desiring to get back home as soon as possible. Jacob's company, on the other hand, would have to travel very slowly. They had already been under great strain in escaping from Laban. And now that the anticipated danger from Esau had also been removed, they want to take it very easy for a time. That's the point here. Okay, there's no deception here. And I say that because some think there is. There's no deception here from Jacob. He is honestly thinking of his family. He's honestly thinking of his livestock. You know, they've pushed hard, haven't they? You know, they, they escaped from uh, Haran and they fled and they went quickly. It took them 10 days, but they fled quickly to get to the edge of the land of Canaan, fearing Laban. They've pushed hard to do that. And now that Laban's been dealt with, and now the problem of Esau has been dealt with, they want to slow down, don't they? They want to slow down and they want to take it easy for a while. 
Now, at the end of verse 14, we see that Jacob tells Esau that eventually he will come unto Seir to see him. It says at the end of verse 14 there, Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I'll lead on softly according as the cattle that goeth before me, and the children be able to endure until I come unto my Lord, unto Seir. So Jacob does tell Esau, he says, I'll eventually come and I'll see you in Seir. I'll come and see you. Now some have here accused Jacob of lying because Jacob doesn't go towards Seir at the end of this chapter. He doesn't immediately head down in that direction, but that doesn't mean that he didn't go and visit his brother. Just because it's not recorded in the word of God does not mean he didn't make this journey down to see his brother. Indeed, the next time we see them together at their father's funeral, they're both at peace with one another. There is love, there is friendship. Matthew Henry writes this, Jacob intimates to him that he that it was his present design to come to him in Mount Seir. And we may presume he did so, after he had settled his family and concerns elsewhere, though that visit is not recorded. The visit to his father is not recorded, but we can be sure he's gone and seen his dad. The point is, just because it's not in the Word of God does not means for accusation, is it? Okay, he says he'll eventually see his brother, and we can be sure that he did keep his word and go down and see his brother in Seir. So this is not a deliberate act of deception, you know. Get Esau out of the way so I can be on my own. That's not what he's doing here. It doesn't fit with everything else we've seen, does it? Okay, him surrendering all this to the Lord, wrestling with God and understanding that God is in control. For him then to deceive his brother, that doesn't fit, does it? It doesn't fit with the flow of God's word and God's word doesn't tell us that either. That's us making assumptions. Okay, this is not a deliberate act of deception. He is just being honest here and polite in refusing this, uh, this offer to travel together. And then in verse 15, we see that Esau offers to leave him some of his men as guards for protection. Okay, it says in verse 15, and Esau said, Let me now leave with thee some of the folk that are with me. And he said, What needeth it? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. Esau says, all right, then, let me just leave some men with you. Let me leave some of my 400 men with you as guards for protection. Again, this is another genuine offer from Esau, isn't it? Now, he looks at, at Jacob, and what he sees is women and children and a few servants, and he thinks there's not much protection here. He's concerned for his brother, and so he offers him some of his men. And Jacob responds by assuring Esau that it's not necessary, doesn't he? He says there at the end of verse 15, he says, what needeth it? What needeth it? Jacob says, I don't have anything to fear. God's dealt with Laban. God's dealt with Esau. What needeth it? I don't, I don't need it, Esau. You see, he knew he was defended by who? God. The host of God. Chapter 32, verse 1, And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him, and when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. He understood that God's with him. And then he's wrestled with God. He knows God's with him, doesn't he? And he says to Esau, what needeth it? He says, Esau, I don't need your protection. I don't need men. I have God. He could refuse this offer honestly and boldly, placing his faith in God. You know, as we consider this conversation between these two brothers, as you consider the conversation as a whole, what's the, the running theme right throughout? The running theme right throughout 
is that Jacob was very careful to make sure that Esau understood that everything he had, everything that had happened to him, everything he was, was of God and of God's grace. In verse 5 he says, God has graciously given me these children. In verse 11 he says, God has graciously given me all these possessions. I have all. And in verse 15, he's testifying that God would graciously protect him. As he had protected him in the past, he says, God will protect me in the future. Jacob is bold here in testifying to Esau of God's goodness, God's grace. Beloved, God had answered his prayer in such a wonderful, miraculous way, and he doesn't miss the opportunity, does he? To give glory to God. Beloved, how important is it when we see God answer our prayers to give glory and praise to God? But how often do we not do it? How often do we not give glory to God? We've prayed about that thing. We've left it with Him. God's dealt with it, but we just keep moving on and we forget to give glory. We forget to acknowledge that God dealt with that. God was in control. Beloved, we need to, like Jacob, give glory to God. For his grace, his gracious hand upon us, as Jacob does here to Esau. In verse 16 now, we see that Esau returns, and he goes back to Seir, leaving Jacob and his family alone. In verse 16, it says, And Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth, and built him a house, and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Jacob now leaves, so Esau now leaves, he heads towards Seir. Jacob and his family are alone. And we see finally now that Jacob has peace. We see the peace that he finds in the land. That's our final point here this morning. We see the peace. Just read it all with me there. Verse 17, it says, Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built him a house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came to Shalem. A city of Shechem, which is in the plain of, uh, sorry, the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram and pitched his tent before the city. And he bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elihi Israel. In this final section, we see Jacob and his family. They now settle down over the coming years. You know, at first, he journeys towards Succoth. And he settles there for a period of time. In verse 17, we saw there, it says, And he journeyed to Succoth, and he built him a house, and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth, which means booths. And so he journeys here, and he, he settles down here for a period of time. Now, Succoth is in the valley of the Jordan, and it later would be part of the, the region that was allotted to the tribe of Gad. Let's go over to Joshua chapter 13 with me quickly. In Joshua 13, verse 27, this is the inheritance given unto the tribe of Gad. Verse 27 says, And in, and in the valley, Betharim, and Beth uh, Nimrah, and Sakoth, and Zarphon, Zarphon, sorry, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, Jordan, and his border, even unto the edge of the sea of Chinnereth, on the side, uh, sorry, the other side, Jordan, 
eastward. This is an inheritance of the children of God after their families, the cities, and their villages. And so this region, Succoth, would end up being part of the inheritance given to the tribe of Gad. Okay, and it was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. That's where he is still. He's still on the eastern side. He hasn't crossed over the Jordan into the land of Canaan proper. He's still on that eastern side. But he stays here for this period of time in this place that would eventually be the land of Israel. It would be their land. He stays there for a period of time because he finds good pasture for his flocks and for his herds, a place they could rest and regain their strength. And they stayed there long enough that they build booths for the cattle. And indeed, it says they build a house as well in this region. So they stay there for at least a year or two. They're there a little while. And eventually, he gathers everything together once more and he crosses the Jordan into the land of Canaan proper. Look in verse 18. So then Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram and pitched his tent before the city. <clears throat> in verse 18, we're told, And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem. Now the word Shalem here actually means peace. And there's no city called Shalem. And so most actually believe that this shouldn't be considered a proper name. But instead the verse should read, Jacob came in peace unto the city of Shechem. And indeed that seems to be the meaning of the verse. He came in peace to the city of Shechem. You see, when Jacob left Canaan all those years before, remember he met with the Lord at Bethel, he saw the staircase, and the Lord had given him that assurance that I'll be with you as you go. The Lord had given him a promise that he would bring him back to the land in peace. And we see that he's finally now in the land and he finally has peace. Go back to chapter 28 just quickly. <clears throat> chapter 28, verse 15. This is what God had said to him. He said, And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and bring thee again, sorry, and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. That was God's words to him. He says, I will bring you back to the land. I will not leave you until I have done all these things. And Jacob's response is recorded at the end of the chapter, verse 20. So then Jacob vowed a vow saying, if, and we talked about the fact that, that means because, because God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God. Jacob understood what God was saying. God said, I will be with you and I will bring you back in peace. And God now kept his word, didn't he? God kept his word. Jacob is finally in the land and he is in peace. In fact, the place that he returns to is the place where God had first appeared to Abraham when he entered the land years earlier. Go back to chapter, chapter 12 with me. <clears throat> Chapter 12, verse 6. It says, And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem. Sikkim. It's the same place, Shechem. Unto the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was, was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Isn't it amazing? He's back in the place. 
where Abraham had come and arrived when he first came and where he first met with the Lord. Jacob is now there all these years later. He's there in that place. He's finally in the land of Canaan proper. And at this significant place, he's at peace. And what does he do? Verse 19 and 20, he purchases a piece of land, doesn't he? And sets up an altar unto the Lord. Verse 19 there, it says, And he bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elihi Israel. He purchased a piece of land there in the land of Canaan. You know, this purchase of land showed that Jacob was here to stay, didn't it? He was here to stay. He was home in the promised land. One commentator wrote this, This purchase showed that Jacob, in reliance upon the promise of God, regarded Canaan as his own home and the home of his seed. This is the first piece of land that he purchases there in the land. God had said it was all his, but he understood he had to wait for that to happen, didn't he? He had to wait. And so he purchases his first portion of land, and on that first portion of land, what does he do? He sets up an altar unto the Lord, and he calls it there in verse 21, uh, <clears throat> verse 20, 20, sorry, Elihi Israel. That name basically means God, the God of Israel. Here in the middle of an idolatrous land, Jacob establishes a new center of worship to the one true God. His God, the God of Israel. And with this altar, Jacob leads his family in worshipping and in giving thanks to God for all that he has done in bringing them to this place. And beloved, this event, this whole event, started back at the start of chapter 31. In verse 3, where we read this, And the Lord said unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers, and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. Remember that? He was there laboring for, for Laban there in Haran, and God appeared to him, and God said, It's time to go. Return, and I'll be with thee. And Jacob responded to that instruction, that command from the Lord, by faith. And in obedience, he, le he left, he went. And God responded by keeping his word. God did as he said he would. God preserved him through every trial along the way. He protected him from Laban and his evil intentions. He protected him from Esau by changing Esau's heart, softening his heart so he received him in peace. And beloved, through every trial that he faced, Jacob responded in the right way. Jacob took it to the Lord in prayer. And God was faithful. God heard him and God kept his, his word. God answered his prayer. And beloved, like Jacob, we can be sure that when we step out by faith and we obey the Lord, He will be with us every step of the way. There will be trials along the way. We've seen that right throughout this whole event. There will be trials along the way. There will be things that bring us distress, that bring us fear. But beloved, we need to take each of them to the Lord in prayer and leave them there and then lift up our eyes, focus on him and press on. And then, beloved, watch as the Lord takes care of each one of them in his way, in his perfect time. 
You see, like Jacob, we will then be able to look back and give thanks. Give glory to God for all that he has done. All that he has done for us and all that he is doing for us every single day. Beloved, our God is a gracious, loving, merciful, trustworthy God. May we trust him fully every day. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this whole story, this whole event with Jacob traveling back to the land of Canaan and every step of the way, Lord, you were with him. Every little concern that Jacob brought before you in prayer, Lord, you dealt with. And Lord, you taught him to focus on the big picture and realize that those little concerns are already dealt with. Lord, may you help us likewise to lift up our eyes to see you in all of your glory, to see you on your throne and realize, Lord, that you are in control. Those little concerns that we have are already dealt with. Lord, may you help us to trust you every day. Lord, bless as we close and be with us as we depart from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.